If you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to get online and listen to last week's sermon. It, uh, it's, you can find it on the website, list on your bulletin. It's a good introduction to what we're doing and, and why we're doing it. Uh, last week we talked a little bit about the importance of regular checkups. We get checkups in school in the form of exams. They help us uh, see if we're on track with our studies. We get checkups in the medical office to help make sure we're on track with our health. We get checkups in the workplace to make sure, you know, annual reviews, make sure we're on track with our work. Uh, and if not, it gives us a chance to get back on track. That's why regular checkups are so important. Uh, last week I told you that I believe that a large portion of the American church has gotten itself off track. And some of the evidence of that comes in the form of a survey that says that 87% uh, of non-Christians view us as too judgmental, 85% view us as too hypocritical, and 75% view us as too involved in politics, which were none of the accusations leveled against Jesus, which means that somehow we have drifted off track a little bit and we want to get back on track. So this whole series is a checkup. It's to help us measure ourselves and get out that map and compass and get back on track with following in the footsteps of Jesus. So I said last week we're going to take a deep dive into the books of Luke and Acts. Uh, it was a those were two books written by a man named Luke. He was a physician and a historian. He was a companion of the Apostle Paul, traveled around with Paul. He was a member of the first century church. He tells us in the beginning of Luke that he interviewed the eyewitnesses, that he investigated very carefully all of the claims about Jesus, and he gave us these documents so that we can know for certain what Jesus was like, what he did and what he taught, and then what the early church was like and how they lived out the teachings of Jesus in their new community. So that's what we're going to spend the next however many weeks, months, maybe years diving into so that we can really get back on track to become devoted followers of Jesus. I told you this last week in terms of why we're doing this. I said, to be a Christian is to be a disciple of Jesus. To be a Christian is to be a disciple of Jesus. And, and that word disciple has a very specific meaning. To be a disciple of someone is to pattern your life after that person, to become like that teacher. It's not enough just to know what that teacher said, but the idea is that we would become like that, that teacher, that person. Disciples of John try to become like John. Disciples of Jesus try to become like Jesus. That's the entire point. So if we want to know what Jesus was like, we... If we want to become like Jesus, we have to know what Jesus was like, right? It makes sense. If you want to become like somebody, you got to know what that person is like. So that's what this whole series is all about. But before we jump into the actual life and teachings of Jesus, we need to spend a little bit of time understanding the cultural context into which Jesus was born. Uh, we want to understand what was going on within the culture, within the time period, because that's going to give us a better understanding of what Jesus meant by his teachings and, and what his actions meant within that time period. Just like if we want to understand uh, what George Washington or Thomas Jefferson was like and what their words and actions meant, it helps us to understand what was going on in the culture at that time. What were the relationships between the colonial states and England at the time? What, what was the culture? And that will help us understand George Washington or Thomas Jefferson or any other historical figure. Understanding the, the history and the culture surrounding them will give us a deeper understanding of what they were like and why they said and did the things that they did. Uh, so we're going to dive into that. But before we do that, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about expectations. Expectations, and you'll see why here in just a minute. Uh, our expectations shape our experiences. 
Maybe you've experienced that in one way or another. Somebody's told you about a movie that they really like, and so they, they really hype up the movie to you. And so you go and you see this movie with the expectation that it's just going to be the greatest movie you've ever seen in your life because somebody gave you these expectations. And you go and you see it, and maybe it's not the worst movie in the world, but it doesn't live up to your expectations. And so your expectation shaped your experience of that movie, or maybe you've experienced it at a restaurant, somebody says, you've got to try this restaurant, it's fantastic. And so in your mind, you're just expe expecting that you're going to go and it's just going to be the best food you've ever had in your whole life. And you go and it, I mean, it's not bad, um, but it doesn't live up to your expectations. Uh, when I was first married, Gabrielle and I, we'd been married for about a year. When we first got married, I was still a student. We didn't have a whole lot of money, so we didn't take much of a honeymoon. We, we just drove down to a, a little place in Arkansas from Missouri. Um, so after we'd been married for a year and I had graduated school, we thought, well, it's time to take more of a proper vacation. So we started looking online. We wanted to go to the beach. Uh, and so we, we thought, well, let's try, you know, South Florida, see what that's like. And we found this hotel online and the pictures were just beautiful, right on the beach. Just a, just, I mean, the, the pictures just made this hotel just look wonderful and beautiful. And we couldn't believe the price. I mean, the price was just fantastic, and the pictures made it look just wonderful. You can probably see where this is going. Um, so we're really excited about this first vacation that we're going to take. Uh, it's our first anniversary. We've been married for a year. We're finally going to get to go to the beach together. Um, so then we, you know, we fly to Miami, and we, we take a cab to the hotel, and we show up, and we're like, well, this isn't what we saw in the pictures. Um, Apparently, you can make anything look really good on the internet, um, and, and the reality isn't always what you're expecting. And it, I mean, it wasn't a dump, it, it wasn't terrible, but it certainly wasn't what we were expecting. Um, if we had gone with mediocre expectations or realistic expectations, we probably would have had a great time, but because we were expecting like this, this luxury resort for, for dirt cheap, uh, you know, we were pretty disappointed. Uh, so our, our expectations shaped our experience. Um, I mention all that to say because in, in the time in which Jesus lived, many of the Jews in the first century in that time period, which is known as Second Temple Judaism, Second Temple Judaism, because they were worshiping in their second temple. Clever name, huh? Second Temple Judaism. Many of the Jews living in the first century had an expectation that God was going to send a Messiah a deliverer who is going to rescue them and restore Israel to its former greatness. So they were expecting that God was going to send a Messiah. So uh, biblical scholars and theologians have come up with this really fancy term uh, called messianic expectation. Okay? You can use this this week, impress your friends and your family. You know, just throw the word messianic expectation. You'll sound really smart when you talk to your friends and family. Okay? So uh, normally I try not to get into the really technical language, but this is, this is a term used to describe the attitude of many of the Jews living in the days of Jesus, leading up to Jesus. They were expecting that God was going to send this deliverer who was going to come and rescue them and restore Israel and redeem them to their, to their former greatness. Now, to understand how they got to this point, we need to back way up in history. So I'm kind of a history nerd. I'm really excited about this. We're going to talk about some folks and some figures that, that you may not talk about very often. If you're a history nerd, you're really going to love this. Uh, if you're not, bear with me. Um, I'll, I'll draw it to a point at the end. Um, we're going to get into some pretty specific history stuff um, that goes way back. 
which I love this kind of stuff, so I'm really excited. If you're not a history buff, just hang in there, okay? Um, so we're going to go way back to the days of King David. King David and Israel, within Israel's history, the rule of King David is sort of viewed as the golden era of Israel's history. Uh, finally, they were in the land that God had promised under King David's rule. They were experiencing uh, victory and prosperity and freedom in a way that they hadn't in a really, really long time. You know, Moses led them out of Egypt and through the wilderness, and they finally entered the land that God promised, but it took them a long period of time to finally get settled in there. And then King David comes along, and he finally subdues the enemies that have been uh, giving them trouble for generations. And so they're experiencing this, this peace and this prosperity and this victory and this, you know, it's sort of like the, the apex of their civilization under King David and his son Solomon. It's just Israel and its glory days, the golden age of Israel under King David. Um, and that God made a promise to David when he was king. And we read this promise in 2 Samuel chapter 11, or 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 through 16. I'll put it up on the screen here. This is the promise that God gave to David through the prophet Nathan. So Nathan says to David, this is the word of the Lord, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me, and your throne will be established forever. So we have this promise to David through the prophet Nathan that the house in the line of David is going to be established forever. And so in the minds of the Israelites, they have this idea that, that there's going to be a Davidic king who's going to rule over them for all all of time. This is sort of what they believed God's purpose for their people was, that God was going to establish through David and through his family a line of rulers and that their, uh, this golden age would sort of continue forever, that they would continue to be in this situation forever. Um, and so we see when David dies that God indeed raises up his son Solomon. And Solomon then is the one who gets to build the temple to the Lord. David wanted to build a temple for God, uh, but God said because he was involved in so much violence that it would have to wait. And Solomon inherited an era of peace, and because he inherited an era of peace, God allowed him to build this glorious, magnificent temple. Um, before that, they had been worshiping God in a uh, portable tabernacle, one that could come down and, and get moved and be built back up. Now they've built a permanent dwelling place. So you can see now this sort of, this is the apex. Finally, they're in the place that they want to be, the place that God had promised them, and now they have a fixed temple. This is really the, the height of, of their civilization, their, their golden age. Um, They've got peace and prosperity even more now under Solomon than they did under David. Things are looking really good. Uh, but following the death of Solomon, things sort of went downhill. If you've read through the story of the Old Testament, you kind of know that the kings after Solomon kind of got progressively worse. 
the kingdom split in two, uh, Israel on the north, Judah on the south, and the kings of each just sort of got progressively worse and worse. There were uh, a couple of kings in there who tried to turn things around, tried to make things right, um, and, and made some progress, but then the kings after them just sort of ruined it for everybody. And the way that the kings went is the way that the people went. Uh, as the kings went corrupt, we saw that the people went corrupt, and they started to disobey God, and they started to forsake the commandments, and they started to uh, become farther and farther away from what God had called them to be and what God had commanded them to do. And so God followed through with what he had promised would happen uh, if people disobeyed him continually and didn't come back and didn't repent. God said that they would be taken over by a foreign land, and so that's exactly what happened. In the year 587 B.C., 587 B.C., the Babylonians, who were one of the foreign powers at the time, one of the great empires of the, of the day, came in and they conquered the land of Judea. Uh, the Babylonians came in and they conquered it. They, they carried away, they deported many of the Jews who were living in Judea at the time, and they destroyed the temple. 587 B.C., they destroyed the temple. They carried away God's people over to Babylon. That's the way that the Babylonians... Uh, did their empire. What they would do is they would conquer a land, and then they would take the people who were living there, and they would transport them, put them in another land, and they would take people from another area they conquered and put them in this land. And by doing that, it would kept everybody kind of confused, and it kept them under their rule, kept them subjected to their rule because they couldn't really rebel because they were in a different land. So that was the way the Babylonians worked. For the Jews, this was ultimate judgment and ultimate defeat. There, there could be nothing more embarrassing, nothing more devastating for Jews living in this time than to lose the land that God had promised them and to lose the temple they had built. This was just, there couldn't be anything more embarrassing, anything more devastating, uh, anything more saddening than, than losing the land that you had worked so hard for, that God had promised you, losing all the prosperity of that land and watching your temple get destroyed. And so they're, as they're carried away, some of them are able to hold on to this hope that perhaps God is going to be true to his word and that after a period of judgment, God will restore them to the, to the kingdom that they once had. They held on to this hope. And they had prophets telling them, listen, this is going to be temporary. If you repent, if you turn back to God who called you, if you, if you go back to his ways, if you, if you seek him again in the way that your ancestors sought him in the past, God will restore Israel to us. God will bring us back to that land and he'll restore our kingdom. And so they held on to this hope, to this expectation. Uh, and then, about 50 years later, in 538, uh, 538, 537 B.C., the Persian Emperor Cyrus uh, issued, a, issued a decree saying that the Jews could go back to Judea and rebuild their temple. So finally, after 50 years of being under judgment and living in a foreign land, this foreign leader um, allows them, issues a decree, and allows them to go back to Jerusalem to start to rebuild their land. And as they go, one of their leaders is a man named Zerubbabel. Everybody say Zerubbabel. Say that three times fast. <laughs> Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was actually a descendant of King David. He was a direct descendant of King David. He was, the, I believe, the great-grandson of the last reigning king before the Babylonians came in and carried them away. And Zerubbabel is one of the leaders. He becomes the governor. He helps lead the project to rebuild the temple. So this is the beginning of what we call Second Temple Judaism. 
uh, under the leadership of Zerubbabel and some other leaders. But they start to look at Zerubbabel and they say, oh, well, Zerubbabel, he's a descendant of David. And he's leading us in this process. Maybe Zerubbabel is going to be the one that we've expected to come and restore our kingdom to us. As a matter of fact, we see that in the book of Haggai. Uh, Haggai chapter 2. When's the last time you've been in the book of Haggai? Yeah, see, we get to talk about some fun stuff we don't normally get to talk about. Um, so Haggai was a prophet who lived during the time of the, what we call the post-exilic period, the, the exile, they were exiled in Babylon, and the post-exilic period where they came back to Jerusalem after the exile. Haggai was a prophet speaking for God during that time, and he has this message from God to Zerubbabel. This is what God tells Haggai to tell Zerubbabel. He says, tell Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, that I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. So we see that within the Second Temple Judaism, the prophet Haggai and others are looking to Zerubbabel as the one that God is going to raise up from the line of David, because that was the promise, to restore Israel to their kingdom. We, we have this imagery that, that there's going to be this, this shaking off, this overturning of royal thrones. And so we know that people are thinking that maybe Zerubbabel is finally going to be the one that's going to bring us back, that's going to... Um, you know, to, to rob a, a current phrase, make Israel great again, right? Um, they think that Zerubbabel is the one who's going to do this. Unfortunately, that's not what happens. Uh, we don't know exactly what happens um, to Zerubbabel. The scripture doesn't tell us, but we know that Israel is not restored to its former glory. They still remain a subject of the Persian Empire. Uh, they're given some freedom. The Persians were, were pretty hands-off. They, they let the, the Jews worship in their own way. They let them rebuild the temple. But they were still under Persian power. Um, and so there wasn't this restoration of the kingdom like the Jews had expected. Uh, they had some freedom, but it wasn't what they were expecting. And so they held on to this hope that perhaps someday in the future, God is going to send us a, a deliverer, somebody who's going to finally break us free from this Roman or from this foreign oppression and restore us to our former greatness and our former glory. But centuries pass, uh, the Persians are eventually conquered by the Greeks. Perhaps you've heard of Alexander the Great uh, in the 4th century B.C. Leads this incredible um, march where he and his army just conquer much of the known world. He's an incredible military leader. Uh, he conquers the area that the Persians once had. So now we have the Greek Empire. Now, instead of being subject to the Persians, the Jews are subject to the Greeks. And after a while, the Greeks are not quite so um, laissez-faire. They're not quite so hands-off as the Persians were. They really try to get involved in the culture of the Jews. And we see that in the uh, second century or so, uh, they really start to try to force the Jews living in Jerusalem to adopt the Greek culture and practices of the day. It's a term that historians use. Uh, it's called Hellenization. Hellenization, which means making them Greek in culture. And so they tried to force them to eat things that they weren't supposed to eat, partake in things they weren't supposed to partake in. Uh, and this really upset a lot of the 
uh, diehard Jews who were living in Jerusalem at the time. And there were about two camps. Some of the Jews went along with the Greeks. And they say, well, you know, the Greeks are over us. If we want to save our skin, we might as well just uh, do what they tell us to do. But there were some Jews who, who were very serious about their faith and said, no, 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 we're, we're not going to do that. We're not going to capitulate to the culture. We're not going to give in to this uh, evil Greek culture that's around us. And so this group of Jews led a revolt. You may have heard of the Maccabean Revolt. The Maccabean Revolt. The Maccabees were this family um, among the Jews in the second century BC that led a revolt against this Greek uh, oppression, and they were actually successful. They led uh, to, from about 167 to about 160, they led this great revolt, and they overthrew the Greek rule, and they took back their land for a period of time. The leader of this was Judas Maccabeus. Judas Maccabeus was his name. Um, this revolt actually is the, the festival of Hanukkah, the Jewish festival of Hanukkah, commemorates the fact that they took back the temple and they took back their land for a period of time. So they had this festival, Hanukkah, that's still what's celebrated today, that the Maccabees finally retook the land. And so some of them, they looked at this like, oh, perhaps this is what God had promised. Perhaps God now has finally sent the deliverer. There was a small problem. Uh, Judas Maccabeus and the, and the family, the Hasmonean family that he was a part of, uh, weren't from the line of David. And after a period of time, it, it became apparent that this Hasmonean dynasty was not quite as righteous as they thought. They became corrupt as well. Um, and then about 100 years later, in 63 AD, the Romans came in and overthrew the, the Hasmoneans, the Jews who were now in control. And so once again, the Jews found themselves under Roman oppression. Once again, they found themselves hoping and expecting that God would send some sort of deliver. They were disappointed with, with Judah. Uh, that expectation didn't work out. And so once again, we see that they're starting to hope and starting to expect that God is going to send a deliverer who's going to break them free from this oppression. And as they read their scriptures, they, they had what we know as the Old Testament at the time. As they read their scriptures, they could see proof to them, in, in different scriptures, that, that God had promises. They would see things that they, they saw as prophecy, saying that God was finally going, that God would send somebody, and, and they hung on to these scriptures, to these prophecies, to give them hope and expectation. Uh, one of the passages of scripture they used was Psalm chapter 2. I'll read it to you, just listen, and you can sort of see as you listen uh, why they read this in this way, and they, why they would have believed that this psalm pointed toward a future deliverer. Uh, Psalm chapter 2, why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and his anointed. His anointed. In Hebrew, uh, anointed is messiach, messiach, which is translated messiah, right? So we see messianic expectation that God would, that's what uh, messiah means, the anointed one. Uh, and there were three groups of people who were anointed in the Old Testament. There were prophets, priests, and kings anointed by God for a special purpose. So they were waiting for somebody who is the Lord's anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. So as they're reading this in Psalm 2, you can sort of understand why they believe that this is pointing to the fact that God's going to send somebody who's going to break off the chains and throw off the shackles of foreign oppression, right? As they read the Psalms, this is the kind of thing that they're seeing that's feeding this messianic expectation. 
the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. My king, Zion, is a reference to Jerusalem, to the, to the land of the Jews, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the sun, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So you can sort of see how they would read passages of scripture like this, and they would see that God, at some point in the future, is going to promise an anointed one, a deliverer, who's going to break them free from oppression. You can understand why they would have this idea as they read passages of scripture like this, right? Here's another one. Uh, this is from Isaiah chapter 11. It says, A shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. Well, Jesse was David's father, right? So from the stump of Jesse, that means from the line of David. So there's a shoot that's going to come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist." So that's from another portion. As they read Isaiah, they could see that God was pointing towards the future. At, at some point, he was going to raise up somebody from the line of David who was going to come and would be a great judge and a great political military deliverer who was going to break the chains of foreign oppression. Um, and then after the Romans took over in 63, I'm going to read you another passage. This isn't from the scriptures, but it's from something that was written after the close of what our New Testament, but they continued to write. It's not like people stopped writing. So this next thing is from a document called the Psalms of Solomon. The Psalms of Solomon. It's not in our scriptures, but it's Hebrew writings, uh, and it, it's written around the time that Rome came in and finally invaded and took over once again. So this is from Psalms of Solomon, chapter 17. It says, See, O Lord, and raise up their king for them, a son of who? David. For the proper time that you see, God, to rule over Israel your servant. Undergird him with strength to shatter unrighteous rulers. Sounds a lot like the Roman king, doesn't it? Uh, cleanse Jerusalem from the nations that trample it in destruction. To expel sinners from the inheritance in wisdom, in righteousness. To rub out the arrogance of the sinner like a potter's vessel. To crush all their support with an iron rod. To destroy lawless nations by the word of his mouth. Are you starting to see a pattern here of what they were expecting? For Gentiles to flee from his face at his threat. And to reprove sinners by the word of their heart. 
and he will gather a holy people whom he will lead in righteousness, and he will judge the tribes of the people sanctified by the Lord its God. And he will no longer permit injustice to dwell among them. And no person who sees wickedness will dwell with them, for he will know them, because all of them are the sons of God. And he will divide them among their tribes upon the earth, and no longer will an expatriate or foreigner dwell among them. He will judge peoples and nations by the wisdom of his righteousness. So this isn't in our scriptures, but we know this is what the Jews in that time period were expecting. This gives us a, a picture of their messianic expectation. They were believing, they were expecting, they were hoping that God was eventually going to follow through on his promise to send a Messiah, one anointed by God who would be a deliverer. And so here's the bottom line, and I say this a little tongue-in-cheek, but it, it's really true. Many of the first century Jews expected a strong, forceful leader who would make Israel great again. Someone who would expel the Romans and build a wall to keep them out for good. Does that sound familiar? That's what, it, I mean, it should. There, there's a reason that people expected this kind of ruler. That's what, they, that's what they wanted. This is what they were expecting. They looked at the scriptures. They saw these, these promises as they, as they put them together. This was the kind of Messiah. This was the kind of political deliverer that the Jews were expecting. So we see in the first century that there was this culture of messianic expectation. They were expecting a Messiah to come. By the time Jesus was born, many, many Jews in that time period were expecting the Messiah to come. And they were expecting him to be this kind of a leader. They had this expectation of somebody who was going to come in, who was going to be strong and forceful and lead an army and be a political military king that's going to overthrow Rome and restore Israel to its former golden era of, of greatness. That it's going to become this national superpower in the world once again. Uh, if you've read the story you know that that's not at all what they got in the Messiah that we now worship. So come back next week and we'll learn a little bit more about the Messiah that actually came and how that, was, how that affected their expectations and their experience. Let me have a word of prayer. Gracious Lord, thank you for preserving for us this history. Uh, help us to understand the, the culture into which Jesus was born. Help us to understand why, uh, Father, you sent the Messiah that you did. Father, help us to become faithful followers of this Jesus. Father, if we have uh, expectations that aren't correct, help us to change them and to shape them so that we can become the kind of followers that you have chosen for us to be, that we can honor you with our words and our lifestyle, that we can become a beacon of light and love and hope that we can become pictures of Jesus to a world in need. I thank you for these things in Jesus' strong name. Everybody said? Amen. I know it's a cliffhanger, but I want you to come back next week. <laughs>